You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Hello and welcome to part two of this look back at season one of Pop, the History Makers. In this part, I'll be looking back with Justin Curry of Delamitri, Anne Clark, John Watts, Alexander Bard of Army of Lovers, and Mikhail Munzing of Snap. Want big savings on best-in-class supplements? From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast 10 and enter podcast 10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. First up, Michael Munzing, famous through the band Snap, where he and Luca Anzalotti were the masterminds and producers of the band. I'd known Michael from the Frankfurt club scene during the late 80s and early 90s. Back then, I'd often be at the Omen, one of the most legendary European clubs owned by Michael, Sven Feit and Matthias Martinson. I think it was kind of important, I think also for Sven to find his path uh, it was uh, 1989. I mean, it was some kind of uh, chikimiki club, we called it. You know, it was called the Vogue. And we went there. And uh, one day the owner asked me and said, listen, you know Sven, you're a friend of them. Can you not ask him if he wants to DJ here? I will pay him a lot of money. And he said, yeah, because when Sven is DJing, all the teenagers are coming, all the girls are coming and blah, blah. So we managed it and Sven uh, spent there. And one day he said, don't you want to become partner of the club? And we said, okay, we become partner. And we, so we did, uh, we ripped out everything from, from the club. We had some construction party, what was legendary, you know? And so we changed a lot of things. And in the beginning, there was a complete other music. It was, there was some kind of garage music, like that. We, we even played Milli Vanilli at this time there, you know, songs like that in the beginning, uh, end of the 80s, you know. And one day, the first um, techno records came out and Sven brought them and we liked them. And I was starting also after 10 years to, to, to DJ again in the club because it was really, for DJ, it was the best place. They, they celebrate, you really feel like the king. And I mean, everybody was playing in this club, from Carl Cox to Richie Horton and Paul Van Dyck. Everybody was playing in the Omen. And they all wanted to play there because they started their career at this time. And if somebody was just coming to the club and he saw what it was going on, he wanted to DJ there. So one day we sit together and Sven said, don't we want to make a techno Friday, we said, yeah, let's do it. So we did one day and we just played techno and it was super successful. And so we made another one and another one. And one day Sven came and he said, I think we should turn the whole place into techno. And without Sven, this will not happen because I was a little bit worried about, and I said, I don't know if we really go now and we change everything, you know, but then we made a decision, let's do it. And it became a Mecca, you know what I mean? People came from France, Belgium, from everywhere, from Greece, just to come into this club. And it was every night, it was a super party. Sometimes, and don't forget, we, we did not have an air conditioning there. We had some air ventilation. 
but it was a small place and you was there. And when you went in as a boy, you could put, put off your T-shirt, you know, because after five minutes, it was a sauna. It was so hot inside that we sometimes uh, called the waiters and would say, throw ice in the dance floor, you know, and they just came with the ice cups and, and throw it in the dance floor. But um, people wanted to go there. It was, I think it was a kind of uh, the same thing what I you know, lived when Dorian Gray started and, and uh, disco music started. It, this was for these people when they came into techno music. It was completely new and it was a music for this generation. You know, so we run the club for, I, I played the power, by the way, and I turned it a little bit faster. After I played it, I find out the song is a little bit too slow. So I turned it quicker, three, four beats, but, you know, it was helpful. And um, yeah, we, the club was exactly 10 years open. We decided to close it after 10 years, you know, what a lot of people never understand, but we said, come on, we had 10 years fun. Let's close it. Let's just make a legend out of this place, you know, if we close it. And yeah, still today you have a lot of websites and fan sites from the Omen, you know, it's, it's still there. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I used to fly there from London as you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, go there and then end up on the, the probably the next night at Dorian Gray or whatever. But I mean, you know, some Sven's birthday, I remember, I think I was in that club for 26 hours in yes. a nightclub. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most amazing experience. And it was something so different and so fantastic. And I'd experienced like the Danny Rampling Club in London, um, Shum, and I'd experienced other, you know, uh, being in New York and things. But this, for me, was, for me, sort of my moment. And you remember how the crowd screamed. Almost every second record, they screamed. They was having party. And that's why I say it. As a DJ, this was the Zenit. You could not go further. This was the best place you could DJ because you, you was, they celebrated you all over the night, you know, and I remember sometimes I, I swapped with Sven, we had a Friday, so I played two hours and he played two hours or something and it was constantly really buzzing on the highest level. This is really crazy, you know, and I never had something like this in my life. And the full interview can still be heard online, a fascinating insight into a music producer with real business acumen. As I mentioned in part one, there are often experiences which we have in common. Well, travelling is one, and many of us experience the lives of other people when we travel. And when this happens at a young age, it can often change our perspectives of ourselves and of the world. And this is what Justin Curry of Delamitri and John Watts of Fisher's Ed have in common. They both spent time as young men in the States, and for both of them, it was an important part of their development. Later, John Watts talks about his American experience, but first, here's Justin Curry of Delamitri on how a formative trip to the States changed the band's music direction. We went to the States to achieve two things, to get round it in one piece and to come back with a, a, an indie record deal. Uh, and we'd, we'd set our sights on a, a label called Big Time in Los Angeles, which is yeah, and just an indie record company so we spoke to them when we were out there and when we came back they sent us a bit of money to do some demos so we did a bunch of demos that were, I, I guess would have been probably 
I suppose would constitute the sort of second Delamitri indie album. Um, and we felt that if we if we could get through that experience, we could do anything. We, we really felt we could do anything because, um, uh, you know, you know, I suppose like the, the, the Beatles coming back from Hamburg, if, you know, they must have thought if we can play like 12 hours a day, we can fucking do anything. If we can get these drunken sailors dancing, you know, or stop them fighting. And if we can just improvise, you know, daft bits of comedy, uh, uh, then, you know, we can, if we can get to that, we can get to anything. And you're sleeping on the fucking roadside and running away from electric storms and having band meetings at the Grand Canyon and being genuinely hungry for months at a time. Um, you, you just think, fuck me, we did that, you know, and it, it, made, it made us feel like we were better than anybody else, you know, um, because nobody else, had, as, as far as we knew, no other bands in, in our milieu had, had done anything like this, uh, actually going to the States with no money and just and kind of busking it, you know. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly so, brave thing to do. I think it's well, an amazing we were, we were, Yeah, I mean, it was brave. The, the, the bravest person was our manager, Barbara, and that she she had the the chutzpah to put it together and think that it might work. And, it, it, and of course it didn't work. I mean, it, 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 it didn't work because we didn't raise the amount of money we thought we were going to raise. Um, but in some ways, in some ways it did work because we did all the gigs. Um, I mean, we had to beg, you know, we had to beg for money, but we, we did do the gigs. Um, so, but then what happened after we got back was we, we did the big time demos, which were, indie, they were probably a bit less indie than the first Christmas album, but not much. But then Ian and I started writing separate things that were very sort of mainstream in Americana. And then we started thinking, shit, these songs are really mainstream. Is there any point in putting mainstream songs out on a small label? Um, so because our music just morphed quite quickly post the American trip, into um, into mainstream rock music, we, we very quickly went from focusing on getting a small deal and doing a small scale thing to thinking we should sign to another major major label. You know, we've got we've got the experience. We're writing pop songs. We, we should go for it. And so we, that was a complete shift of of um, planning. You know, want big savings on best in class supplements. From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com podcast10 and enter podcast10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. When I was there, I stayed in a house. The other memory, I stayed in a house with a lot of Vietnam War veterans, which was quite influential. They were only two or three years older than me, but they'd been to Vietnam, and that was they were like 100 years older than me. And there was a guy, I remember, underneath the wooden veranda, every time a car or any kind of machine turned up, he just dived under it and hid. 
And so I had those kind of experiences. And I had a lift with a very mad hippie art teacher. And she was completely off her head on drugs and ill. And so I drove up the 101 myself with a gear, sh with a, an old column shift um, car, which I had to keep a large orange bottle full of water on to keep in gear. So those kind of things were quite interesting. That was the American thing. Then I came back to college for a bit and, um, and we were playing punk clubs at night. And then I was working with psychopaths in the daytime in mental hospitals as a clinical psychologist. And I was working with psychopaths at night in clubs. It was really funny. And then we went straight from that to, to, to doing very, very successful. It was very odd. I didn't do a, I didn't do a normal formative 20. I didn't do, I didn't do like, I don't know, 20 to 25, like most other people. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because in America, you were with yeah. Stephen, I presume, in America, because yes, you met him at university, yeah. Yeah, Steve Scrawny, yeah. Yeah, so in, in America, by meeting these uh, Vietnam vets mm. who were, as you say, just a couple of years older, but their experiences yeah. uh, right. were far more uh, traumatised than, than your experience would have been, what, yeah. what did they relate to you and how did that impact you in terms of understanding the world a bit better? Well, I think um, consequence, I mean, coming from a military family, I was, at the, I was the head chorister at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst. And when, if you're a head boy in that choir, it's for a start, the singing's unbelievable. Secondly, every column, every pillar in that cathedral is covered with a dead of the First World War. The different regiments, every, and I knew lots of them by heart because you'd read them when you're reading Beano's and stuff when people were doing sermons. But the point about that was, I was always very aware of um, things military, the consequence of things like the First World War. And so therefore, when I, I tied that across, obviously when I met the, all the Vietnam War vets, I mean, at that stage, um, I mean, that was only, when well, let's see, that was, 70, when was that, 73, 74. I mean, that was only 75. It was ridiculous. I mean, it, um, there were still um, many of the um, First World War veterans around and all sorts of stuff. The only thing was, it was a bit like being in um, one of the famous, um, it felt a little bit like being in the Deer Hunter because it was so weird. Their reality was so weird. And for instance, they say, you haven't got any boots. You haven't got any boots. And we were going out, I was picking fruit and making money up there, I think. I said, what do you mean I haven't got any boots? They said, there's snakes out there. There's snakes out there. I didn't believe them. And then I, I saw slithery things around the place. So. It was bizarre. It, it felt an, an unreal world. I mean, you mentioned clinical psychology and working mm. in clinical psych psychology. What yes. did that uh, allow you to understand about yourself? Um, I think, I don't know. I, I didn't go in for that reason. Most, a lot of people who go to study psychology want to find out, find out about themselves. I wanted a sandwich course that would allow me to um, do all the music I wanted to do. So therefore I did the course over four, and a, over four and a half years. I did the usual degree, but I'd worked with psychopaths. I'd worked with severely disturbed 16 year old kids and I'd worked on a venture playground. So I was ready to go out and work. It was, it was a working degree and it was a way, it was the way of financing my music that was interesting. I wasn't looking to find out stuff about myself. I was looking to see a weirder world. I mean, I, I, I found working with the psychopaths for six months, just extraordinarily stimulating. I Why? Want to well, for the most part, there were psycho psychopaths, sociopaths. They were extremely creative people, very much like me. And in their attitudes to things, it's just that there was an element of self-control that disappeared for about 5% of their lives. And that's when they got into trouble. Apart from that, they were great fun.
Anne Clark also provided a fascinating insight into an artist's background. Along with David Harrow, Anne had enjoyed success with some of the defining hits of the 1980s, Sleeper in Metropolis and The Darkness. One of her most defining moments of her youth, though, was working at the psychiatric hospital Cane Hill, immortalised in the David Harrow and Clark track. If there's one glorious part of my education and one thing I really cherish, it was the fact that at this secondary school out in Old Coulston, which is where the what they were called then lunatic asylums were, Cane Hill was on the suburbs of London, this old Victorian building, and part of our social studies class was every few weeks was to, to, to go there as a class and assist in, in, in the hospital. I mean, I can't imagine that they would even consider it now, even allow it now, you know, I don't know, with all the regulations and things. But we would go there, maybe 10 or 11 of us, and we would just sit with, with some of these people and talk with them. And, and the initiative, whoever the teacher was or the, the part of the school was that initiated that, they deserve I don't know what because for me that was the biggest education of my life to just go there and see see these people see a man who was was then in his late 70s who'd been there as a young boy because he stole a loaf of bread because his his family was so poor or another woman completely institutionalized in her 80s because she got pregnant when she was 15 or 16 or something and just just put there um and yet it, to see this this fragility and this vulnerability of people and to have this ability to communicate with people, which I didn't have at home, and to just listen and talk to them and, and them just being so happy just to be able to talk with someone and sit with someone and read a book with someone or have a bite to eat with them, you know, if you felt... But yeah, of course, <laughs> then the other extreme was in the hospital. They had very very dangerous people in there, very psychotic and people that, yeah, you know, it wasn't too, which we shouldn't have even been around as kids really, but sometimes we did see that. And um, yeah, for me, it opened up a whole new world of, of understanding people or wanting to know about people. Um, now, of course, Cane Hill is luxury apartment blocks. I mean, at the time it used to be, it was wonderful. I mean, they had a farm, they had their own farm where they would work and yeah, it, it was the most beautiful place. But of course, along with the, with the beauty, when I did go and work there for a while after school, there was incredible cruelty too from some of the staff. I mean, really wicked behavior. So that opened up another view of it and yeah, a lot, then in the 80s, the Care in the Community initiative came, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. And they were all closed down. I don't know what happened to all the, the patients. But, um, yeah, when I went there with Klaus to make the, the video, they cut down every tree, ripped up every beautiful thing, and, and they were now selling luxury apartments there. I think the energy and the ghosts there must be quite interesting for people <laughs> that are living there now when i talked to john watts the other week uh, from fisher's ed um he worked as a clinical psychologist and although he made a joke about it he he was he meant it in some truth that he said he used to um be with psychopaths in the day 
and be on stage with psychopaths in the evening. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to ask you if you're a psychopath, but what I'm saying is that fragility (laughs) that you mentioned and this feeling that you got from those people, I empathise with that as a writer, definitely, that pain um, and that sensitivity. So I just wondered that, is that what you empathize with more than anything else that you felt part of yourself or saw part of yourself in them as a reflection it must be I think it must be Stephen I really think so I think it it has to be that um this fascination you know with with these people's stories um yeah I mean of course there's this I mean when we were kids at the school coming out of the school we'd there'd be these horror stories you know and when the winter evenings and autumn evenings drew in and we'd have to walk past the hospital to get the bus home. You know, we'd all have this, you know, there's going to be a mad axe guy waiting there at the bus stop. So you had this crazy imagination, this Edgar Allan Poe scenario going on. So it stimulated all kinds of things, but ultimately the humanity of of the, the stories of the people there. And that's for me is the huge thing lacking and the, and the huge things we're distracted by with politics and consumerism when if only they our sensitivity towards each other could be nurtured what a different world we would have want big savings on best in class supplements from november 21st to 28th you can save 25 percent on all of bioptimizers products no restrictions and no limits This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast 10 and enter podcast 10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Now, one of the many pleasures of working for MTV Europe back in the late 80s and early 90s was having the opportunity to travel all over Europe and interview bands who were making waves locally and bring them to a wider audience. Army of Lovers was one such band. I became close friends with La Camilla, the stunning face of the band back then, and I'm still hoping to talk to her in the new series. But I wanted to catch up with Alexander Bard. He's the outspoken instigator of the band, who has gone on to carve a career out not only as a musician, but as a political and religious activist, often loved or hated for his views. The interview was a wild ride through his life, particularly after I mentioned his Wikipedia entry. If you check the first sentence of Wikipedia, it's a lie already, right there. But keep it, you know. So who writes? Yeah. Who writes that you're a sex worker in Amsterdam? Then. That's... Oh, that's correct. Oh, there, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's the thing and I thought, okay, first of all, what does sex worker mean? Because it does mean working in the sex industry, or does it mean what's going through my head right now? No, no, no. It definitely is work. It's hard work. No, I, I was invited. I came to Amsterdam and I worked as an assistant. 
I think it was Noel Harding I worked for first. I worked as assistant for, this was a video and performance art scene that was very centered on Amsterdam in the early 1980s. Money was pumped from the tech companies, a bit like today when you go to Netflix. You know, the, the, at the time it was Sony who pumped money into whatever we're doing in Amsterdam. So we could do whatever we like. And, 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 and I, I love that atmosphere to be there. And then I had two friends, two quirky, funny guys who were selling sexual services. They were kind of a bit bored, wanted to smoke their joints, and they were good looking. So they adopted me. And I was just like, I'm going to hang out with these really great looking guys and sell sex. And just like, yeah, we got a specialty for you. What? We're going to put your boots and claw on jeans. And you're going to be a Nazi skinhead. What? What? Neat. It's like the music industry, Steve. The music industry. Nietzsche's. Everything is about Nietzsche's. Find your own subculture and your set. And then you'll discover if you find your own subculture, Nietzsche. You might as well go global. Were you popular? You might as well have found the perfect to like Nazi skinheads. I was very popular. There was definitely market for this Nazi skinhead with an attitude. What? (laughs) I did it for four years. After after doing that, what did it leave you with? Did it leave you with um, some sort of attitude about uh, uh, clients of the sex industry, did you did it change any of your world perception, any of your perception of humanity? I, this is really funny because I'm actually doing a podcast series with Leona, Laura Leon. Laura Leon is a really gorgeous Norwegian sex worker, dominatrix, obviously. And we're exploring what if we study sex work from a Marxist perspective? What if sex work is the only work? Because in sex work, it's absolutely necessary to separate work and spare time. One is called sex, one is called love, right? So uh, it's beneficial to be bisexual because a lot of sex workers are bisexual. And that means they pick a partner from one gender and then they sell sex to the other gender. And that's kind of more coincidence than than the choice. It, it It just makes it easier. But it highlights the fact that for a sex worker, it's really, really important to make a difference between selling sexual services and having sex with people that you actually have feelings for. And that was striking to me. I I don't think I ever had sex in private with somebody that I sold sexual services to. That made it easier for me to separate the two. So yes, a, a lot of the people I sold sex to were sexually very attractive. But what you do when you do sex work is that when you meet somebody you get feelings for, you're attracted to normally, you compromise on your fantasy. So it's, it's the mix of your fantasy and the other person's fantasy becomes the sexual act. Now, when you sell sex, you sort of take away your own fantasy. It's not there, it's work. That's something you, you say for a spare time. So you go into work mode. And basically you're given an offer. So somebody says, I have this sexual fantasy that I really, really, really want to happen. And I'm willing to pay for it. So here's the fantasy. And I'm asking you, are you willing to do it with a hard on, preferably, or something, you know, it would work for you. It would turn you on. Uh, Are you willing to do it? And what would be the cost? So essentially, it's a trade deal. And that's what's called trade. So the trade deal is essentially, yeah, yeah, sure. I could do that. Yeah, I could definitely do that with some passion. You know, you put passion into work. I'm proud of my work. I could definitely do that. Yes. And here's the price tag. And then you make the deal. And uh, you conduct the ceremony, so to speak. And that's work. And I think sex workers have always fascinated me because to begin with, they're always the scapegoats of everybody else's frustrations in a society. So people go after a woman and call her a whore, for example. Well, 
my point is that sex workers aren't the real whores. Whores are people who sell their souls to the devil, right? Sex workers actually don't. They say no. <laughs> they say no to offers they don't want to do. They're like any trader in the bazaar. They say yes to certain offers. They say no to other offers. And sometimes they say, I could do that, but the price tag's got to be higher. So you have to pay more for me to do it, right? So you do the deal and then off you go and you're proud of your work. And I found a really strong sense of unity among sex workers, both men and women, both gays and straights and anything in between and trannies and everything. I think a lot of the good stuff that I liked about the LGBT movement was my own experience as a sex worker. And I think sex work is the place where all those sort of sexual minorities really meet and have a really sort of organic uh, meeting point. So I was interested in this for various reasons. I did it professionally for four years, then quit. It doesn't mean that I would never ever do it again. There are perverts out there who like old men, believe me, they exist. So, um, but uh, I learned an immense, an immense amount of things from that period. Yeah, it was tough at times and rough at times and uh, people are weird. I learned how sick and weird people actually are. <laughs> so it, 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 it got me interested in psychoanalysis. And I later became a psychoanalyst, which, which is essentially taking philosophy and applied on a single human being and that human being's own life. That's what psychoanalysis is. And I, I don't think I'd ever gotten as interested as I was, especially being an Nazi skin and selling to Jews. Freud was my idol. <laughs> so, but yeah. you must have actually really, you know, you said you became a psychoanalyst because of this, but you must be able to judge people very, very quickly when you're a sex worker because of the danger or the situation that you could be in. So you need to be able to see who is here for the reasons you want them to be there and who is there maybe for things that uh, you don't want or may take you down another route where you don't want to go. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have cover. So uh, the thing is that we were three guys working together. We always covered each other. So a phone call away, friend coming over. So it's like, you know, if somebody didn't play by the rules and sometimes they didn't, sometimes they even got a kick out of not playing by the rules, then the thing you would tell them afterwards was like, and I mostly sold sex to couples, right? So the, the, the thing you would tell them right afterwards was just like, okay, um, you did what you did. You broke the rules. Um, don't call any of my friends in this town ever again because they will all know within 24 hours that you're assholes. Oh, wow. Oops. Okay. Did you no more fantasies explored, right? So what you essentially do is like a bazaar. What you do is that if somebody treats you unfairly, you basically lock the market for them. And if you're a good sex worker, if you're credible, if you're honest, if you're decent towards the other sex workers, again, with attention here, you get the credibility among the others. And sex workers actually do stay together way more than any profession I know of because they have to. Then, of course, you know, besides that, I think sex workers are tougher than other people are. They have a certain, what I call a shamanoid personality, which is more experimental. They can go further when it comes to experimenting with drugs and sex and anything. They, they just have a psyche that usually can handle more than the psyches of other people are. And often because they had really tough upbringings. A lot of sex workers I've met said, yeah, I was raped when I was nine years old. You know what? This is my way of dealing with it. And it's a constructive way of dealing with it, a creative way of dealing with it. I get paid. For it now, you know, and I can turn it around and I'm in charge rather than me being the victim of, 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 of somebody who is assaulting me. Right. So I think I think the current discourse in society, I hate woke. 
I hate victimhood cults. And all the sex workers I ever met hate that. And they hate when people who are not sex workers try to speak on their behalf and turn them into victims here in Scandinavia, especially in Sweden. This is constantly the case that radical feminists go out and say they speak on the behalf of sex workers who they declare are trafficking victims and all kinds of nonsense, which is blatantly untrue. So I just think that sex workers, like anybody out there, should be allowed to speak for themselves. That, that's what I learned from my four years as a sex worker. And I am a member of the Sex Workers Union today because if you've done sex work, you're allowed to be a member and I'm an honored member. I go there every year to the annual meetings and I make coffee for the other girls and guys who are there. And the full Alexander Bard interview, as with all the others I've mentioned, is still online. And that, sadly, is it for this second part of the look back at season one of Pop the History Makers. I'll see you later in January with a revamped season two. See you then.